Well, this morning we are returning to our study through the book of Acts, and today we are focusing on Acts chapter 13, uh, the first 12 verses. Uh, You will recall that in Acts chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ told the apostles, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, that commission from the Lord really gives us the basic structure of the book of Acts. First, the disciples waited in Jerusalem, as Christ told them to, for the filling of the Spirit, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then through the power of the Spirit, they shared the gospel. Thousands of Jews in Jerusalem believed. The church grew quickly, both in numbers but also in maturity. There was opposition to this growth, for sure, especially from the Jewish leaders. Several times they had the apostles arrested and brought charges against them, but the apostles continued to preach Christ and the church continued to grow. Then the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, arrested Stephen, uh, one of the early deacons, and ended up putting him to death for his faith. Well, directly following Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution broke out against the believers. As a result, they were scattered all through Judea and Samaria, And as they scattered, they continued to speak of Jesus as the Christ in those places, just as Christ had commissioned them to do. The Lord used Philip, another one of the early deacons, to take the gospel to the Samaritans in particular, and many believed through his ministry. Then the Lord brought the apostle Peter together with a Gentile centurion in the Roman army named Cornelius. Cornelius and his family heard the gospel from Peter, and they believed. Then we're told of the gospel going to the Gentile city of Antioch. The Lord began to do just some really amazing things in Antioch, and the Jerusalem church ended up sending Barnabas to help them. And as Barnabas observed the evidence of the grace of God in their lives, he was so encouraged, and he ended up sending for Saul to come and help. He knew the Lord had called Saul to reach out to the Gentiles, in particular with the gospel. So Saul came to help Barnabas in Antioch. Then in Acts, Luke takes us back to what was taking place in Jerusalem and points out to us that persecution had once again raised its head. Herod had the apostle James executed. He then arrested Peter with the intention of doing the same thing to him, but the Lord miraculously brought him out of prison and answered to the church's prayers. And then... When we come to the end of, of, of Acts 12, we are told that the Lord further answered the prayers of the church when he struck down Herod for his sin. Acts chapter 12 ends with these two verses, verse 24 and 25. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So even in the midst of great opposition, the word of the Lord continued to grow, continued to have multiplication of growth. And then Luke then prepares us for the things that the Lord is going to do through Barnabas and Saul. They end up returning. They had had gone to Jerusalem to share an offering that had been taken up to help them in a time of famine. So now they're returning to Antioch, taking along Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. So beginning with Acts 13 then, we're going to see how the gospel began to spread to the remotest parts of the earth. 
It is through Barnabas and Saul, especially Saul, that the gospel is going to spread all over the Roman Empire. Luke points out to us in the book of Acts as a whole that the spread of the gospel took place primarily through three different missionary journeys of Paul. And it's the first of those missionary journeys that we begin to read about in Acts chapter 13. So let me read for you Acts 13, 1 to 12. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the To the Lord in fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name was translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. In these verses, we see really two main things. First, we see how the Antioch church set apart Barnabas and Saul for their mission. And then Luke tells us about some things that happened on their first stop in their mission and there in Cyprus. So, first main point this morning is this. We see in Antioch, that the Lord has chosen to make his church central, central to the gospel work in the world. So as we begin this new section in the gospel of Acts, Luke starts by calling attention to the church at Antioch. He says in verse 1, Now there were at Antioch and the church that was there. Now, more literally, it says at Antioch in the being or existing church. And the word for being is emphatic. What Luke seems to be doing is emphasizing the fact that a local church existed, had been started in Antioch. This was not merely just a loose-knit group of Christians who had heard and responded to the gospel. They had organized as a church. And this organized local church, primarily of Gentiles in Antioch, was about to become the hub of the Lord's gospel work in the Roman Empire. We just sang the song this morning. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ loves his church. He is eternally committed to his church. He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. There's going to be opposition. There is strong opposition oftentimes to be sure. But it's through the church with all of our weaknesses 
that the Lord has chosen to reach the world. Then we're told of the leadership of the church at Antioch. So look again at verses 1 and 2. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was, also, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now there are several things to take note of in these verses about the leadership. We see, for example, that the leadership of the local church are people set apart by the Lord and recognized by the church who give priority to worship. Priority to worship. The leadership of the church at Antioch are described as being prophets and teachers. They are, they are obviously the men that the members of the church at Antioch recognized as their leaders. And it's possible that some of these men were prophets and some of them were teachers. It kind of seems more likely that those two terms kind of are meshed together and they are used to describe each of the men listed and that the authority and kind of give it just to illustrate the authority that had been given to them within the church. At this time, of course, in the history of the church, there were people who were given the gift of prophecy who would speak uh, revelation uh, from the Lord. So these men here had been given that gift of prophecy, but they were also teachers. So at times, the Lord would reveal specific things to them and through them. For example, in Acts chapter 11, we saw Agabus, who was a man known as a prophet. He foretold of a famine. That was to come. Well, these prophets were also people who could explain, could to not only Lord would use in that way, but they were also teachers. They started, they could also explain or teach about existing prophecies uh, of the Old Testament. Well, Luke lists five men who made up the leadership of the Antioch church at this time. He begins with Barnabas. We know that he was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. The Lord had used him already in significant ways in the Jerusalem church. And when he was sent from the Jerusalem church to the Antioch church, we see here that he became one of the leaders of that church. Next is Simeon, who was called Niger and was probably from Africa. Niger means black and likely is a reference to his skin color. <coughs> we are then told of Lucius of Cyrene. It's very possible that he is one of the men who helped start the church. If you look back at chapter 11, uh, verse 19 and 20, it says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So it's possible Lucius of Cyrene could have been one of those men who helped start the church. They were told of one named Menaean. He had been brought up, we are told, with Herod the Tetrarch. This is the Herod who is often mentioned during the life and ministry of Christ. And Menaean may have been raised as a foster brother of some sort of Herod. And then Saul is mentioned really as the fifth leader of the church there at Antioch. The diversity among these Antioch leaders really is quite impressive. You have some who were Jews and some who were Gentiles. You have one man who was from Africa. You have one who was raised in a royal household. 
You have Saul, who had been instructed by Gamaliel, who was the Gamaliel, who was the most respected teacher of the day. Antioch was very much a cosmopolitan city, and this list, even of their leaders, really gives evidence of that. But really, what is most impressive about these five men is that they gave priority to worship. They were worshiping men. In verse 2, it says they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The word for ministering really speaks of prayer and worship. The fasting may have been something they regularly did, or it may have been that they were fasting as an aid to their prayer, uh, focus on a specific, uh, specific issue for a special purpose. So worship must be a priority in our private lives. It must be a priority, and also in the corporate gatherings of the church. Obviously, worship is so vital. What was in the context of this time of prayer and worship that we see the next point? And that is the Holy Spirit works through the local church in sending people out, sending people out for gospel ministry. So as the leaders were spending time in prayer and worship, the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now, this could have been through one of the men as a prophecy. We've already seen that they were prophets. Or it could have been that the Spirit just especially impressed this on their hearts and they were all in agreement about this. So the Spirit speaks to them of the work that he had already called Barnabas and Saul to be doing. We know that the, that the Lord spoke very specifically of this to Saul at his conversion. This is back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, and he's speaking about Saul, for he... Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Saul's call to missions was very direct and clear. And the way the Lord had used Barnabas in ministry in various ways seems to indicate that he also recognized the Lord was leading him in a similar way. And so I really wonder if it was this reality that had set the leaders to praying like they did. I mean, the Lord had done a great work in establishing the Antioch church, and they were trying to discern what was next. The Spirit confirmed to them that both Barnabas and Saul needed to be sent out by the church to share the gospel in the Roman Empire in a further way. And so as much as they wanted to see the gospel shared more widely, at the same time, I think it'd be difficult to realize that two out of your five leaders were going to have to leave for that to happen. But they wanted to obey God first and foremost, and so they end up sending them out. In verse 3, I think we see the church acting as a whole on what the Lord had revealed to the leaders in verse 2. The fasting spoken of in verse 3 could be a continuation of what was mentioned in verse 2, or it could be a subsequent uh, different occasion. But I do believe the congregation is now involved. And as a church, as a part of, a, of the, the gathered church, they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and asked God's blessing on their ministry. They officially, officially set them apart for this special work. Now, the reason I think it's the congregation as a whole who's involved here is because of what we see in Acts chapter 14, verse 26 to 28. After their mission trip was over, Barnabas and Saul's, they came back to Antioch to give a report to the whole church, not just to the leaders, but to give a report to the whole church. So that kind of implies to me that they were sent out 
really by the whole church. So as Luke begins to describe the ministry of Barnabas and Saul in verse 4, he begins with this interesting phrase. He says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the church at Antioch. It was the Spirit who had orchestrated all of this, but it was all done through the local church. Both Barnabas and Saul had some understanding, especially Saul, but I would think Barnabas did too, had some understanding of God's call on their lives. But they did not go out on their own initiative. Instead, they waited on God's timing which he made known to them through their church. That's an important principle to remember. God's call in our lives and the recognition of that call through the local church go together. The church needs to recognize that calling as well. The Holy Spirit works then through local church to send people out for gospel ministry. Now let's look at how the mission work of Barnabas and Saul began. In verses 4 to 12, we see, we, we see that in the midst of great opposition to the gospel and the world, the Lord causes his word to prevail, to prevail in his time and in his way. So we see first off in verse 4 that they went to the port town of Seleucia, about 16 miles west of Antioch, to begin their journey. From there, they sail to the island of Cyprus. So we see from this that in spirit-led wisdom, in spirit-led wisdom, Barnabas and Saul began their mission in Barnabas's homeland. Cyprus uh, is an island nation in the Mediterranean Sea, about 60 miles from Seleucia. So why did they start in Cyprus? I think that's an interesting question to ponder. The Holy Spirit's been referred to a couple times in reference to Barnabas and Saul's mission. I don't think that necessarily means that the Spirit was giving them detailed directions on which cities to go to and in what order. You don't get that impression, really, in any of the places Paul would visit later, with one exception. In Acts 16, Acts 16 speaks of the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And we see them, those who were with Paul, who were going, uh, had gone to several cities. And then we see in verse 7 of Acts 16 that they were trying to go into Bithynia. But in some way, don't know exactly how, but in some way the Spirit would not allow that to take place. Then Paul gets a vision about going to Macedonia, and that's where they go. That's what they do. Well, the fact that Luke mentions this event in particular seems to indicate that this was out of the ordinary. These missionaries used what I've used before is the idea of sanctified common sense in determining where to go. In other words, I believe they applied biblical wisdom to make this decision. And I think that's an, a, a guide for us. That's how we make decisions. It's a good example here, I think. And I think this explains why they began their ministry in Cyprus. There's two very good reasons for them to start there. One is, uh, we already saw this from Acts 11:19. We know that some believers who were scattered because of the persecution had already gone to Cyprus and begun to share the word of the Lord there. So there was work they had already done and that they wanted to build on that work. But the second one 
and maybe even the most important one, is Barnabas was from, was from Cyprus. So, of course, he would want to start the mission work in his homeland. So, in dependence on the Spirit of the Lord, Barnabas and Saul wisely choose to go first to the island of Cyprus. Well, next we're told that Barnabas and Saul carried out their ministry by proclaiming the word of God, beginning with the Jews. Verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Salamis would be the first city they would come to when they arrived in Cyprus, and they began to work their way across the island east to west. Uh, what they did is described as, as they went, what they did is described in two ways. First, they proclaimed the word of God. That was their message. It was a message, of course, that would recognize that we're all sinful. It's a message that made it clear that there's no way we can be right with God on our own effort. It's a message that would highlight the salvation that God provided through Jesus Christ. They were calling on people to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Barnabas knew well that that was what his kinsmen needed more than anything else. He dearly, I'm sure, wanted them to hear and respond in faith. And we know that's the message that all people need to hear more than anything else. That need hasn't changed. That reality hasn't changed. It's still the same. But secondly, we are told that they declared the message in the synagogues of the Jews. And the fact that synagogues is plural really implies to us that there was probably a rather large population of Jews on the island. So by going to the synagogues first, Barnabas and Saul were following the principle of the gospel going to the Jew first and then to the Greek. They followed the same principle really throughout their mission as much as, as, much as it was possible. We're also told for the first time here that John Mark went with them as a helper in the ministry. Uh, he does not continue with them for very long, uh, Barnum, the, and we'll, we will actually see that next week. But he does begin with them. The next thing Luke writes about is how opposition to their message began to rear its head. That opposition was clear, of course, in Jesus' ministry. He had all kinds of people who were against him, who, who opposed him in various ways, ultimately putting him to death. It was clear in the apostles' ministry in, the, in Jerusalem in the first part of Acts, so much opposition. And the opposition continues as they move more and more deliberately into and throughout the Roman Empire. So we see beginning in verse 6 that the opposition to the gospel was exemplified in Bar-Jesus. Verses 6 through 8 is where we see that. It says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Barnabas and Saul have traveled over a hundred miles now to the opposite end of Cyprus and have come to the city of Paphos. This was the city where the governor of the island lived. It was also the place where there was a famous temple to the goddess Venus. And that in itself tells you what a stranglehold idolatry had in this place. Now, there's several ways that Bar-Jesus is described. First thing we see is, first we see that he was a false prophet 
who sought to deceive, a false prophet. He's described in verse 6 as a magician or a sorcerer. In other words, one who worked with the occult. That's a bad thing on its own. But what makes it worse, that Bar-Jesus is Jewish, and the Old Testament law pronounces condemnation on anyone who would be involved with occult activity. On top of that, he's further described as a Jewish false prophet. But we just saw some true prophets of God spoken of in the leadership of the church at Antioch, but here we have a false prophet. He not only practiced sorcery, but he also would pretend to speak words from God. He was telling people that he was speaking to them under the inspiration of the Lord, a false prophet. He was fully given to deceiving people. Obviously, he himself was deceived. So he would definitely be very concerned with the message that Barnabas and Saul were sharing. They were speaking the word of the Lord. His whole life was focused on opposing the Lord while pretending to serve him. Next, we see that he actively opposed. He actively opposed the gospel and sought to keep the proconsul from believing. The proconsul was Sergius Paulus. He served as the governor of Cyprus. Apparently, Bar-Jesus, who was also known here as Elimus, was something of an advisor to him. Sergius Paulus is described as an intelligent man, so he was a man who was thoughtful, a man who was prudent. He has certainly heard about what Barnabas and Saul were doing, and he wanted to hear the message for for himself. So he summoned them to come and speak with him. He wanted to hear the word of God personally. Well, since Bar-Jesus was a false prophet and a sorcerer, of course, he would despise the word of God. And he knew enough to know that if Sergius Paulus accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, then his influence in Cyprus would be over. He would be exposed as a fraud. So he actively opposed Barnabas and Saul. He was trying to persuade the proconsul not to listen to them at all. He was using every trick, every lie that he could think of to make sure that Sergius Paulus did not hear, and if he did hear, that he would not believe this message. This kind of thing is still very common today. There are many, many people, I'll say pretend to be spiritual, but actually probably see themselves as being spiritual, pretending to be religious. They even pretend oftentimes to be Christian. But in reality, they reject the most fundamental truths of the gospel. And they actively seek to dissuade anyone from looking more closely into the Christian faith. They will use anything they can think of to keep people from the Lord. Unfortunately, this kind of opposition to the gospel is still a very common thing. Well, then the Lord used Saul to expose Bar-Jesus for who he really was. This is verses 9 and 10. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, fixed with the Holy, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? So from these verses, we see that though his name was Bar-Jesus, he was actually a son of the devil and an enemy of true righteousness. So in the middle of, first of, this, of this confrontation with Bar-Jesus, Luke tells us, like, by the way, Saul was also known as Paul. And from there on, that is the name 
that he goes by. Now, this is not a new name for him. Saul was a Jew born to Jewish parents who gave him the Jewish name Saul. But he was also a Roman citizen. And as a citizen of Rome, he had the name Paul. It was quite common for Jews at this time to have two names that they went by. So in the midst of dealing with a Roman governor, we see that Saul begins to be known as Paul. And this is because he's going to be going to many Roman cities in the future, and the name Paul would serve him well in that way. We also need to note something about the name Bar-Jesus. It actually means son of Joshua or son of Jesus. But under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul calls Bar-Jesus out for who he really was. He was not a son of Jesus. Instead, he was a son of the devil. That's who he was. Paul was a spirit-filled man before this took place. But we, and we see something here, though, that we have seen in other situations in Acts. There were times when a believer was given a fresh filling of the Spirit to deal with a particularly difficult situation. And that's what happens here. Because it says he's filled with the Spirit. Literally, he's having just been filled. Well, he'd already been filled. But he's been filled afresh for this particular encounter. So in the fullness of the Spirit, Paul sets his eyes, just looks at him. You can almost see the look in his eyes on, on Bar-Jesus, just a holy boldness, I think I would describe it as. He confronts him as a man who was full of deceit, who was full of fraud. And in contrast, Paul is a man who is full of the Spirit. But Bar-Jesus is filled with deceit and fraud because, again, he's a child of the devil. And because he was so full of evil, he was an enemy of righteousness. He was intent on taking the straight ways of the Lord and making them appear to be crooked and untrustworthy. What does it entail to be an enemy of unrighteousness? John Gill helped me think about this, and I appreciated some things he had to say. This quote says, A wicked man is an enemy to all, unright to all righteousness in every branch of it, in whatsoever light it might be considered. So in other words, an enemy of righteousness can be seen from several different angles. There's many branches to being an enemy of righteousness. First off, one who's an enemy of righteousness is going to be an enemy of God because God is the righteous God. He's the very fountain of true righteousness. It means you're going to be an enemy of the law of God, which is God's revealed standard of righteousness. To be an enemy of righteousness also means that you're going to be an enemy of Jesus Christ because he lived a perfectly righteous life. He was the righteous sacrifice given for us. To be an enemy of righteousness means that you're an enemy of all people who are righteous and value what is righteous. To be an enemy of righteousness is to be an enemy of the gospel because it's the gospel that reveals to us what true righteousness is in Christ. And it tells us that we can be righteous in no other way except through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, there are many people in our day who are enemies of righteousness, trying to take the straight ways of the Lord and make them crooked and pretend that they are still believers in the process. But they can't be. You can't do both. <laughs> 
To be an enemy of righteousness is a truly dangerous place to be. And we get a picture of that by what happened to Bar-Jesus. In verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So here we see that the Holy Spirit filled Paul, especially for this task, and he pronounced God's judgment on Bar-Jesus. So the Spirit of God is the one who enabled Paul to speak God's judgment on Bar-Jesus and expose him for what he really was, explicitly described his wickedness, his sin, and as a result, says very directly the Lord was going to judge him. And the Lord made it clear to Paul exactly what that judgment was going to look like, at least at this time, I mean at this particular time in his life. And it was going to be by the hand of the Lord that Bar-Jesus would be made blind. He would be so totally blind, he would not even be able to see the light of the sun. A complete blindness. So this judgment was designed with, I mean, you can just see several things in mind here. First, this judgment was designed to make it clear that Bar-Jesus was a wicked man. He was truly a wicked man. No matter what he claimed to be, he was a wicked man. It was also meant to confirm the righteousness of God that Bar-Jesus was denying. And it was also a judgment that was very suitable for his sin because Bar-Jesus really had shut the eyes of his mind and of his heart. So the Lord shut his physical eyes, struck him blind. But even in judgment, there's mercy here because he would only be blind for a time. This was not a permanent blindness. Bar-Jesus deserved that and more, but there was mercy here, mercy that was meant to lead him to repentance, I believe. We don't know if that ever happened. We don't know if he repented. We're not told. We do know that he was, in fact, immediately struck blind. He says he began to grope around looking, trying to find someone who could help him find his way around, help him know he was completely blind. All sin deserves God's righteous judgment. But praise God, he's also a God of mercy. He gives room. He gives time for us to repent and believe. But again, we must not assume on God's mercy. We need to take advantage of the opportunities that he gives us. Finally, we see here that the Lord enabled the proconsul to see the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he believed the gospel. In verse 12, we see that then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So even though Bar-Jesus was doing his best to keep Sergius Paulus from hearing the word of the Lord, he did hear. And it says he was amazed at the things that he heard. And then he was astonished, of course, when he saw this miracle of God's judgment played out right before his eyes. And from the way Luke describes it here, it seems that the proconsul was more amazed by the gospel message than he was by the miracle he saw. I like how Matthew Henry describes what took place here. He said, The doctrine of Christ has a great deal in it that is astonishing. And the more we know of it, the more reason we shall see to wonder and stand amazed at it. We saw this same truth last week. We were looking through 
Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us, a child is given to us, and the first word the prophet used to describe the Messiah was the word wonderful, full of wonder. Every aspect of the Messiah, every aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ is something to cause us to wonder and stand amazed at. He is the promised Messiah who fulfilled all that the prophets promised hundreds and even thousands of years beforehand. That's something to wonder at. He's the eternal God who humbled himself and came to earth as a man, as a baby, a thing of wonder. He lived a perfectly righteous life in all his thoughts, all his motives, all his words, all his actions. He died as the perfect Lamb of God, as a substitute for sinners. He was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ that we are fully and eternally forgiven for every sin we have ever committed. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we are counted as perfectly righteous in the sight of God. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters. All these things are causes for wonder, for amazement. So I was thinking about this. I was reminded a lot of you know Leisha Bateman. Uh, her and Mark and the family members here for a long time now live in Tennessee. Leisha's testimony of faith was always astounding to me. Uh, and I'm going to get some of these years wrong, but it seems like when she, it wasn't until high school, maybe even a little older, before she ever even heard the gospel. She had never even heard it before. She was completely clueless. When she first heard it, her response was, that can't be true. If that was true, everybody would believe it. I know she was so astonished by the message, it couldn't be true. It was too good to be true. Well, of course, she began to realize it was true, and she did believe. Just that idea of being astonished. One of the prayers I've been praying for myself as I've read through here, I don't know what happened with Sergius Paulus as he, in, his, in his own faith. He started off being amazed being full of wonder at the gospel, at the doctrine of Christ. There's, there can be times, especially early on, that you are had that kind of amazement that, that Leisha would talk about. I don't know about you, but sometimes after you've heard that story over and over again and you know it so well, sometimes some of the amazement starts to kind of, it doesn't seem quite as amazing anymore because you know it so well. I've been praying for myself and I've been praying for us as a church that that wouldn't happen. That really our wonder, our amazement of the, the doctrine of who Christ is would continue to be fresh and to even grow in the wonder of what that's all about. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your mercy toward us and the fact that the gospel has been made clear to us. We have heard it. We have read it. We have Christian friends that we know who are examples to us of it. So I want to thank you for your mercy toward us. Every one of us in here are sinners. Every one of us in here have done things that we're ashamed of and many things that we don't want anybody else even knowing. But we thank you that you know the depth of our sin more than anyone. But instead of condemning us, 
you have sent the Savior on our behalf and have led us to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord to save us in mercy. At the same time, we know judgment is real. We see it here. We see a man who was clearly gave the, gave the um, image of being religious, of being spiritual, but he was the complete opposite. And he was judged severely, called out for it in public. Lord, help us to see how serious that is, that judgment is a serious thing. And Lord, I want to thank you too. One thing we've also looked at here, looked at here is just the, just the blessing that it is of being a part of your church. Thank you so much for being a part of the local church. I thank you for these people in this room and just how much they mean to me and how much I am, I am helped by their own walk with the Lord and their own testimony. So thank you for the privilege of being a part of a church. And we thank you for saving us. If you're one who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ, as we've said, God is a God of mercy, and he has given you time, given you time to repent and believe. I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ if you haven't done that before. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I fall short. I deserve the judgment that bar Jesus got, and even worse, I know that, but I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world for sinners like me, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to receive him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. The hymn we're going to sing is hymn number 99, if you would like to use one of the hymns.